Ever thought about setting up a website to advance a business idea or share your knowledge? If you don't know where to start, then let's be partners. I'm Jonathan Mosen, and at Mosen Consulting, we work with our clients every step of the way, doing as much or as little as you need us to do. We'll set up a domain name, design a logo, install and configure the website, and then give you a personalized manual written in clear Mosen Consulting style so you can run the website yourself once it's set up. Working closely with you, Mosen Consulting will deliver a website that's accessible, classy, and functional. Contact us and describe the website of your dreams at mosen.org. That's M-O-S-E-N.org. Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosen. Two more sleeps. Just two more sleeps. <laughs> Great to have you with us on The Blind Side. And I'll talk about the two more sleeps thing in a minute. But let me first tell you about what you can expect on the podcast a little later. We will be speaking with Philip Chalker. Now, Philip has been advocating for Virgin Australia to make their in-flight entertainment system accessible. You may remember that we spoke with John Ray in Canada about this very same thing back in August, and he and a fellow complainant were also successful in making Air Canada's in-flight entertainment system progressively accessible over time. It's an important subject, isn't it? Because I guess many of us who are listening to this podcast will think, well, you can just take your iPad or your iPhone or your Victorita stream or whatever it is that you have on board loaded with stuff and you can listen to it. What's the problem? But I think the principle is really important and the principle is that if something is available, it should be available to us too. Simple as that. I mean, sighted people can take on board iPads and iPhones as well, but the airlines see fit to offer in-flight entertainment. And if they offer in-flight entertainment to some of the people, they should offer in-flight entertainment to all of the people So congratulations to everybody who pushes these things a little bit, because I know sometimes some blind people push back. And I think that's very unfortunate because we all benefit from people who take a stand like this. So we'll be talking about the Virgin Australia experience with Philip Chalker. And as you know, we talk about a range of issues from a blindness perspective. And some of those issues are mainstream issues. A big issue that's going on right now for our friends in the United Kingdom is Theresa May's snap election. She said she wouldn't do it. And then she did it. And so there's an election campaign that people weren't anticipating on right now. And the Brits go to the polls. On the 8th of June, the major political parties have released their manifestos now. And we'll be talking about this with Dave Williams. We'll also be talking about a rare disability issue that's actually on the election radar at the moment. And this relates to the hoops that the current Conservative government are requiring disabled people to go through to continue to receive the benefits they already get. It's an extraordinary story, and Dave Williams will be telling us about it and also his own experience with that process. Now, did I say there were two more sleeps? (laughs) There are two more sleeps. I'm going to have a little talk about this because I'm excited about it, and it's my podcast, and, you know, it's really about it. Two more sleeps until the release of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band remix. And why is that significant? Well, I think that most critics would agree that Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, the album that was released by the Beatles on the 1st of June 1967, is one of those albums that just changed everything. And many people categorize music in terms of what happened before Pepper and what happened after it. Many groups were influenced by Sgt. Pepper's. It expanded the horizons of what was possible. And apart from all of that historical stuff, it's just a great album. And I want to talk about this a bit from 
an audio geek's perspective because there are many audio geeks in the blind community. Hooray for audio geeks. And if you have any interest in the history of this stuff, you may be interested in it, even if you're not an audio geek. In 1967, the Beatles did not have access to eight-track machines. They existed for sure, but the Beatles didn't have access to eight-track at that point. In retrospect, some of the Beatles have said it's a shame we didn't go to the States and record some of this stuff, but they didn't. So they only had four-track machines. And so what they would do is they would record onto four tracks and then they would dub those four tracks onto another tape. So, you know, if, you, if you're old enough, you may remember those twin cassette decks that we used to have, especially in the 80s, where you could do high-speed dubbing and things like that. So you know that even with the highest quality equipment, there's just a little bit of degradation that occurs when you copy from one tape source to another tape source. The Beatles had to do that, or George Martin, who produced the Beatles and his team, had to do it because they were just out of tracks. And what it also meant was that once you mixed those four tracks down onto a single track onto the next tape, it eliminated your ability to do anything else with the mix because you'd now mixed everything down onto one track. So it was a little bit limiting for sure. It is staggering to think that if you use a digital audio workstation piece of software on your computer, so for example, Armadeus Pro on the Mac or Reaper in the Mac and Windows or even Ferrite, which is a great little digital audio workstation for iOS, which I use a little bit, you have more power even on your iPhone than was used to produce the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band album. The Beatles have done some remixing before, and if you got the one album by the Beatles in 2015, you got fresh mixes of most of that material, including, if you got the right package, a Dolby Digital and DTS 5.1 version of those mixes. So if you listen to movies on a good sound system, a good home theater or a 5.1 surround sound Sonos system that's been set up, you know how cool it is to have sound surrounding you, things coming from behind you, all of that sort of stuff. Well, the Beatles have done that with some of their music. Giles Martin, who was the son of Sir George Martin, he has looked after these mixes and he has done, with a little help from his friends, a new version of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band for the 50th anniversary, and they've gone back to the original tapes. So the restrictions I talked about don't apply because thankfully they kept those original tapes before they were dubbed onto others. They've taken all those original tapes, they've put them into Pro Tools, and they have done a brand new mix of the whole album. They are basing that mix on the mono release of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And these days people find it hard to appreciate or understand that it was the mono mix of Sgt. Pepper that was the definitive one. They spent weeks doing the mono mix and only about three days doing the stereo mix, which was a kind of throwaway. So I have heard some of the tracks on the new Sgt. Pepper album. They're stunning. And the reason why I'm telling you about this now, apart from the fact that there are two more sleeps for me, as I uh, publish this podcast, because Friday, which is the big release date, comes to New Zealand before it comes to most places. Isn't that groovy? The reason I'm telling you about this is that we are going to be celebrating this big time on Mushroom FM. Now, my hope, and I'm knocking on wood and I've got everything crossed and I'm not walking under ladders, is that I will be able to obtain the full set of the remixes very early, I'm working on that, very early in the day of Friday the 26th. 
so I'm tentatively scheduling a show on Mushroom FM, and we're going to do two things. The first thing is we're going to talk more and hear from Sir George Martin himself and the other Beatles and various documentaries that I'm splicing together about the making of the Sgt. Pepper album. And then, after that, we're going to play some of the remixes. We'll talk about the stories behind the songs, how they were produced, and just celebrate this album. We will do a couple of A-B comparisons. In other words, play the 1967 version and then the 2017 version. But we won't do it for every track because that would be kind of tedious. We may well also get one or two of the mono mixes in by way of comparison as well. There are also a whole bunch of outtakes that have never been released before. For example, the big chord at the end of A Day in the Life. That was originally a vocal hum. A big choir was planned to hum that final chord and then the Beatles decided it wasn't dramatic enough and we'll get to hear that in the deluxe edition of the album where there's a bunch of outtakes that are being released and of course there's a 5.1 mix of the whole album which we won't be playing because we're not set up to stream 5.1 and most people aren't set up to receive it in that way anyway but we will be looking at the stereo mixes so I can't promise you for 100% certain that we'll be able to do this but I'm very confident and I'm confident enough that I'm promoting it uh, for any Beatles fans because the significance of this is that we hopefully will be able to do this just like I did with the Beatles remasters in 2009 before it's available for sale in most of the world. Yay for New Zealand getting to Friday early. We are anticipating being able to do this show on Thursday afternoon at 1pm US Eastern Time. That is 6pm on Thursday in the UK and it's bright and early at 5 a.m. New Zealand time on a Friday morning. You can go to mushroomfm.com. You can also find Mushroom FM in all of the radio apps, including TuneIn, which means that if you have a Google Home or an Amazon Echo or one of those things, you can just tell TuneIn to tune into Mushroom FM, and it will. It's also in the Victory to Stream because that uses the OO Tunes directory, where you'll also find Mushroom FM. So any kind of device you have, you should be able to tune into Mushroom FM. We'll look forward to your company. You may also like to listen to Mushroom FM on Thursday night because it's another edition of A Cuppa at the Mosins. I really appreciate all the new listeners and callers that we're getting to that show. It is so important, I think, to have this place where we can just talk about our issues and discuss these things, sometimes debate these things among ourselves. And we're going to be talking this week about a subject that is dear to many people's hearts, and that is overhelpful sighted people. How do you deal with it? I've had many experiences over the years when I've been accompanying another blind person, and I've thought they've been actually quite rude. And I wonder whether that's always necessary. Sometimes, if you've tried the softly, softly approach, and somebody just insists that you need help when you don't, or somebody physically grabs you and tries to propel you across a street in the wrong direction or something. And I mean, you know, there are boundary issues. We don't want to be physically grabbed by anyone. So there are certainly times when it is appropriate to take a stand and be quite aggressive and say, look, you've overstepped a line here. Leave me alone. But how do you deal with overhelpful sighted people? Knowing that there may be another blind person who does require the help that you don't so we're going to be talking about that and we'll also be getting your experiences we hope if you choose to call in about your worst experiences of this kind when somebody's just been so incredibly inappropriate and overly helpful 
Any strategies for dealing with it, we'd love to get them. This is our global talk show, a cuppa at the Mosins. You can call in via phone numbers around the world, and you can also use your web browser if you use Chrome or Firefox. You can make a web call. All of the details of that show are available at mushroomfm.com slash cuppa. That's mushroomfm.com slash C-U-P-P-A. Very much looking forward to your company at 9 p.m. Eastern Time on Thursday night for this live call-in show. If you're not sure when that is where you live, you can check the Mushroom FM schedule page because by default, it displays in your time zone. Our place, our issues. The Blind Side with Jonathan Mosen. Back in August on The Blind Side, we spoke with John Ray who talked about taking action in Canada with their human rights legislation, and that resulted in Air Canada phasing in an accessible in-flight entertainment system. Well, Virgin Australia has become the first airline in the Asia-Pacific region and just the second airline in the world to introduce a system like this. It includes voice prompts, a simplified interface, and larger screen icons. And just as sighted people can, blind people will be able to find out information such as how far away they are from their destination. Philip Chalker has been advocating for this outcome with Virgin Australia, and he joins me from Australia now. Philip, how did you get into this? What prompted you to start this process? It was back in 2013. I travelled to America after swapping over from one dog retiring to get a new dog. And all that kind of stuff. I had to get a, I had to have a bit of a break because it was my first dog and experience of getting a first dog and experience of giving up on a, on, on, on my first dog. So me and my wife went over to America and, um, I didn't enjoy a nearly 21 hour trip all the way from Australia to America because I shouldn't have the rights to, um, ask the air hostess or my wife every second. Can you, can you please, um, put a movie on for me or, you know, this movie's finished, can you put the next one on, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So I approached said to the to the air host, uh, um, excuse me, I'd like to let you know that these are not accessible for people who are blind and visually impaired because we shouldn't have the rights to ask you guys, ask a person next to me or ask my wife and all that. And I was sorry, I'll take note of it, you know, but just I don't, I don't believe when just taking note. So I just held on until... I finished coming back to from America, so up and back. I was bored. I waited till I got all the way home, and then I approached the um, Human Rights Commission. The fact that you did that is really impressive because a lot of people, they get into these situations. I'm a very regular flyer, and I must admit I tend to just take uh, an iPhone or an iPad or something like that on board. But the principle is important, isn't it, that if they are offering a service like this to passengers who are paying then they should be offering it to everyone but most people would have let it go it's interesting that you decided to be a bit tenacious about this and take it further yeah because as you just said right everybody everybody just assumes you know they've got an app they got an app you know we just might as well take our um um ipads or iphone but why should blind people have to carry a lot of extra devices around just to impress their you know minds in reading books or you know watching an audio description movie from their own phone when these and we had the rights to sit down on the seats like every other paying customer and access those screens like everyone else so yeah when I look at outcomes in Australia, things like the Olympic Games program, and we're going back away now to 2000, and various other things to do with public transport, the Australian disability discrimination legislation really does seem to get results. Can you tell me a bit about how that process worked for you from when you started this 
until you got the outcome that you can now celebrate? Actually, I went to the Human Rights Commission first, but then after the Human Rights Commission, I ended up getting a um, petition happening, which got over 10,000 signatures. I don't know whether you know about the change.org, but that's pretty popular right. and all that kind of stuff, that website. And I got 10,000 signatures, and you wouldn't believe on how many mentioned about, you know, problems with people with wheelchairs getting on planes and how many people have been dumped here. There and there. there was just one couple of weeks ago with American Air, United States airline refusing people on air, uh, refusing people just because of disputes or little things. Because there's a lot of people out there. These airlines don't like us little people speaking up. You know, whether you got sighted or whether you don't, whether you haven't got sighted, they don't like people speaking up. And when you do speak up, though, yeah, and all that. So when you went to change.org and you did that petition, you obviously got a lot of support if you can get 10,000 signatures on that petition. But I'm wondering if you got some negative feedback as well, where some people might be saying, oh, you know, you're stirring things up. What are you complaining about? Did you get any of that as well? Yeah, I did. But I just I let it go through one ear and out the other, really, because there's a lot of people out there. Well, I mean, you, you probably get it as well as an advocate, you know, every now and then. I mean, it's the way, it, it's the way you, it's really the way you approach people. If I'm going to, if I'm going to have an attitude back to the one that's giving me negative attitude and then the ones that are supporting me thinking, well, if he's going to be like this, well, I'm talking about the ones that are supporting me. If they see me reply back to bad comments, they're going to think, well, you know, and all that. So I just let it go through one ear and out the other and, and accept the ones that are, are appreciating what's been happening. That's how I look at life. So yeah. So you went to the Human Rights Commission. How did they handle it and, and how did they progress the issue with you? The Human Rights Commission um, approached me and just said to me, look, um, what day did you travel and all this kind of stuff? I told them I told, and all that kind of stuff. They go, well, we can contact the airlines and um, have a chat to them and find out, you know, what's going on and what's their process. Are they willing to do this? And um if we have to have a conciliation, we'll have a conciliation. So what I did is I um, also contacted Blind Citizens of Australia and have an, a letter written up with them and I had um, uh, had somebody from Blind Citizens of Australia in, in the background talking and all that kind of stuff because um, some of these people can talk big languages and it can, it can confuse us and also he just, he just basically – he was just basically sitting in the background saying Philip met this, Philip met that, because it's hard to it's hard to talk to some of these big people. And after the conciliation meeting, they agreed to me, um, once things are processed, we're going to fly you over to how would you like to be um, having a trip to to Brisbane? You know, our come our things paid for, we'll pay for your airfare and all over there, and you can come and trial a you can come and trial a system for us, a software system and all this kind of stuff. This is actually before I got put on a plane. I, um, I got sent over there, me and my wife, um, on an aeroplane. Um, we, we felt like VIPs being a little individual that did something big like this, you know, um, like, um, traveling first class, airfares paid for. We went to, um, the Virgin Australia headquarters and all that kind of stuff. Well, that's, that's big. You have, to, you have to get your photo taken when stepping to the property. You've got to get walked around and everything. So um, I sat down with a bunch of people and we ended up uh, – and they had like this little screen. I don't know what sort of screen it was because I've never come across it. It was similar like those little tiny mini um, DVD players, but um, I can't remember whether it, had an, whether, it, whether it had a keyboard like an iPad, but it was similar, something like touchscreen and, and – um, Panasonic, yeah, it was Panasonic was actually trialing assist. They, they, they did like a, 
a, a draft copy of a software that they're going to put on it and they wanted me to trial it. It sounds like they weren't too difficult to persuade. Is that right? So, I mean, from the time that you contacted the commission and you went into some conciliation about this, were they actually quite willing to make this change and make their in-flight entertainment accessible or did they take a lot of persuading? Well, kind of yes and kind of no. I didn't get the impression because sometimes when talking with conciliations, you know, you, you can't you can't always get satisfaction out of the conciliation. So that why that's why after the conciliation, I created the petition. So that actually happened after the after the that happened during the process of me testing and and um, me or sorry just before just before the testing period before I got sent over there and I did that because just in case the conciliation didn't work, you're not only going to hear it from one person on how bad the, the systems are really are, you know what I mean? And in between then, that's when they called me over during the petition too and I said, oh my, you know, this is really getting this is really getting serious. By the time I got sent over there, it was up to 4,000 people already. Yeah, so I mean, I mean, the, they just the, the kept principle... on going on about the app and all that at the end and, and all this kind of stuff and, and when... um. Somebody from Blind Citizens Australia again asked me, how did, you, how did that go? I think, well, I don't know because I was trying to get across to them that the app's not, it's not they don't, know, don't only think about the app They got a, and all that kind of stuff. So then I took action and got the petition done further. Yeah, I, I, think, I think this is a really important point that often people say, well, there's a workaround. But I think the principle of universal design is really critical here. And so... If they are offering this feature to passengers, it should be offered to all passengers. And as you say, it shouldn't be a requirement that a blind person own an iPhone or an iPad. I mean, the app is actually very good, and I've flown Virgin Australia, and I've used the app, and it's great. But that's really not the point. So tell me what you think of the entertainment system now that you've seen I it up and running. Had a, I've not I've, I've actually had a chance of really trying it yet. You know, I've even getting, I've even getting. From, from, from showing you from showing you that comment and all that kind of stuff, um, I've even getting comments back, but I don't want to push people too far. I don't want to push Virgin Australia too far, but I've been getting comments back now, asking the asking for a free flight now, so you can go over and test it. <laughs> you right. know what I mean? Because I haven't had a chance to actually test it yet. This is where they this is where they um had someone from Vision Australia tested it. Okay, tested the real one out now. Tested the real the real software that's out on there now. I was hoping that they sent me back over to Brisbane so I can get on a plane and trial a real one, but they couldn't do it on they couldn't do it on the ground. They couldn't actually get when I say on the ground, they couldn't have a plane left on sitting there for me to get on a plane and test it without me flying somewhere and all that kind of stuff. So whether they got someone from Vision Australia in Brisbane and set uh, and let them have a little flight somewhere to test it out and all that kind of stuff. I don't know whether you had a chance to watch the video, but that was a lady in the background talking, right. another lady in the background talking. She was a, a Vision Australia staff, I think she was. She tested it. I mean, to be honest, it would have been it would have been nice for me to test it, but, um, yeah. What kind of precedent do you think this has set? I mean, if Virgin Australia has been made to do this, do you think that other Australian airlines, especially the big one, Qantas, might be required to do this as well? I'm hoping once one gets on board that they all get on board. That's why I'm spreading this thing around crazy. So, so I, and I'm also, I might might be the wrong thing to do, but I'm spreading this this um, news article around to other other airlines too, just to say, look, if one can do it, others can do it. Feel the need to sound off. 
Share your thoughts about this week's show by email. Send an audio file or write it down and email theblindside at mosin.org. Well, they say exercise is good. And if it's good to exercise your franchise, then the franchise in Britain are jolly fit because they've been going to the polls an awful lot over the last few years, whether it be the Scottish referendum, the big Brexit referendum, local elections. And of course, they only had a general election a couple of years ago, but they're going back to the polls at the beginning of June. And we're going to be talking to Dave Williams about this extraordinary snap election. Dave, welcome back. Hello, Jonathan. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's talk about why you guys are going to the polls now, because people who are listening to us from the United States will know that you can look your 23 years into the future, say, and you will know the date of that election. It's not that way in Britain, is it? I mean, they, they try to make it more that way, but it seems in the end that um, that fixed term Parliament Act is not worth the paper it's written on. It, it, it really isn't. And uh, so in 2010, we had our first coalition uh, government in a, in a long time. And the coalition was comprised of the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats. They brought this fixed term Parliament Act in. So we were scheduled to have an election every five years. So there would be a five year term and, and, and then everybody would know. Uh, and, you know, the reason for the fixed term Parliament Act apparently was to give us more certainty about what was going to happen and to you know minimise sort of political opportunism, you know, when things are going well. Oh, let's have an election because things are going well. Uh, so we got to 2015 and the Conservatives got a, a modest majority in the House. So they are the biggest party, just. And then in 2016, we had the referendum to leave the European Union, which the Brexiteers, as they've become known, the Leavers, the people who wanted out, won by a small majority. It was 52%, 48%. So that was almost a year ago now. And the way you leave the European Union is to trigger Article 50, which starts a two-year process uh, of negotiating the terms of your departure. So what's your relationship with that block going to look like after those two years are up? And Article 50 was triggered in March of this year. So the clock is ticking now. Now, of course, in politics with all these things, they could just decide to extend it if they want to, I suppose. So it came as a bit of a a, a surprise to some people that uh, toward the end of April, Theresa May, our current prime minister, who wasn't elected because after uh, David Cameron's Remain campaign failed in the the referendum, he, he stepped down. Uh, And there wasn't really much of a contest for the leadership of the Conservative Party. Anyway, Theresa May kind of won by default. So she doesn't feel like she has a very strong mandate from the British people because we didn't elect her. And so uh, while, you know, the French have been away having their general election, and I think Germany, they've got an election coming up, I think she sort of felt like, well, nothing's going to happen with this this Brexit thing for a couple of months anyway. So she's taken the opportunity to seek a stronger mandate from the British public. And there's a bit of opportunism here because the opposition, the Labour Party, um, you know, the traditionally more kind of left of centre, more kind of socialist values movement is in a bit of disarray at the moment. So I think Theresa May's 
government feel that they can make some political gains uh, in this in this snap election which will take place on June the 8th. I guess it won't come as a surprise to anybody to know that the other reason why it was so unexpected that Theresa May announced this election was because she had blatantly gone out on about 20 different occasions and said she was not going to go early. She had emphatically ruled it out. And then one day she just turns up out of the blue on the steps of number 10 Downing Street where she lives and works and says, oh, well, I've, I've changed my mind. We're going to have an election after all. So... That's another reason why it was unexpected. Before we talk about the campaign, what about the implications of Brexit from a disability point of view? Because the European Union does have a lot of human rights legislation. They have been advancing disability causes over recent times especially. Are there concerns among the blind community about the implications for human rights of a Brexit? I think there are concerns around the whole range of issues and the, the problem with it Jonathan is there are so many unknowns at, the, at this stage so we are entering into this this two-year period of negotiation we don't know what our trading relationship is going to be like we don't know what the status of of immigrants in each other's jurisdictions is going to look like you're right that um, you know the EU has disability legislation which has been enshrined in British law and obviously one hopes that won't be repealed in any way but Going forward, is it likely, I don't know, but is it likely that the EU will be more progressive in terms of their disability legislation than, than we will? We, we will have to wait and see, I think. At the moment, the big issue for blind people is the way state benefits are being managed. So if you have a disability and you live in the UK, uh, you could apply for something called disability living allowance and you don't live off disability living allowance it's you know it's not that amount of money it is for the extra cost of living with a disability so you might get a few more taxis if you're blind for example uh, so there's a mobility component and there's a there's a care component to it now this benefit is not means tested so it doesn't matter if you're if you're out of work or you're the ceo of a big company this is meant to reflect the cost of having a disability and the Conservatives at the moment, they're trying to, you know, during these times of, of, of austerity, they've been trying to reduce the benefits bill. So they're assessing everybody again. And this has been outsourced by the Department of Work and Pensions to Atos and Capita, who are two private companies. And apparently it's costing £700 million to basically go back to people who've got long term conditions people who are in receipt of, of this DLA and to, to reassess everybody. And the manner in which this is being conducted is causing a lot of stress, a lot of concern uh, amongst the blind community. That is the thing. But that's really kind of separate from the, the, the whole Brexit thing. Yes, and indeed it is an election issue. It's nice in some ways. I mean, the, the subject matter is unfortunate, but it's good to see the mainstream media covering disability issues. One of the characteristics about this campaign is that Theresa May has really tried to shield herself from anything but the most stage-managed events, and she came a cropper quite recently when she encountered a woman with a disability, a learning disability, who managed to sort of intercept her on one of her walkabouts and gave her a very public telling off about the state of disability benefits in the United Kingdom. And that really has got disability issues in the news during the election campaign. 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah, uh, disabled people are on the news, um, you know, because of this this thing. And also, the the initial amount has increased. So the the amount that the tender was supposed to cost was five hundred million, and and that's gone up since this this process was outsourced. So people are angry, you know, and and some people cite that as the reason for the leave vote, just because people were frustrated and wanted to express that in in, in some way. So. There's a bit of that going on. On the Labour side of things, their campaign hasn't been (laughs) flawless either. Poor old Jeremy Corbyn does seem to come a cropper at at every opportunity. And um, to be honest with you, John, I don't think people have a lot of confidence in his his competence as, as as a leader. He has the backing of the membership of his parties, but there's always seems to be dissent from his MPs. The manifesto for the Labour Party was leaked early. There was an incident a couple of weeks ago where uh, Jeremy Corbyn was in a in a car, a uh, Scotland Yard car. So, so this was a, a, a police-managed uh, vehicle that ran over the foot of a cameraman. And there was then Laura Koonsberg, who is the BBC's political reporter. She was giving first aid. And then there was photographs of the ambulance. You know, so it just looked terrible. Even though none of it was Jeremy Corbyn's fault, it just didn't look great you know and and it's you know it's a little bit of a non-news story but it it, it sort of typifies you know what seems to happen uh with, with with jeremy corbyn yeah there's a real juxtaposition there because i think there's a very clear a very stark choice for britons in this election and that hasn't always been the case i guess critics would have said during the blair tenure that you had a choice between the tories and tory lives in in labor and now that's certainly not the case and you've got an agenda laid out in Labour's manifesto that is classic Labour. It could have been the sort of thing that Clement Attlee would have been happy espousing in 1945. Or, of course, as the Conservatives are repeatedly saying, Harold Wilson and, and Jim Callaghan would have been happy with it in the 1970s. But you've got a choice there. But it, it does seem to me that uh, British politics is moving to the left because Theresa May has come out with the manifesto for the Conservatives and she has gone famously on record all the way back when she was shadow home secretary, shadowing David Blunkett, who we spoke to on this program not so long ago, that she felt that sometimes the Tories were perceived as the nasty party and that they had to avoid that. So do you detect a slight leftward swing in general, which has sort of forced Labour to almost the extreme left? A little bit. I, I, you see, well, part, partly what, what's happened is, is UKIP has, has imploded. So the, the UK Independence Party, which was the party uh, that was set up really to, to, to push for the departure of the UK from, from the European Union. And they got a lot of votes in 2015. They didn't get many seats, but they, but they got a lot of votes because we have this, this strange first-past-the-post system. And that vote seems to have gone to the Conservatives because people... The sense I'm getting is that people think that the the Conservatives will be the party that will that will get you know a strong deal for 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 the UK. People don't have the confidence that that you know that Labour it could be a bit back and forth and drag on and, and all the rest of it. Whereas people seem to think that Theresa May will get the get the deal. So so their support is is growing anyway. But yes, you're right. I mean, she has also gone after the kind of Labour marginal seats with 
um, policies on social care. So our National Health Service has been under a tremendous amount of pressure in uh, in recent years with long waiting times at accident and emergency departments. Uh, and when you when you talk to people in the NHS, they say that the reason for this is because care in the community has been been underfunded, and so that problem presents itself, you know, at the hospital at the GP surgery. So in the Conservative manifesto, they've announced um, a a policy now where basically all your assets down to your last £100,000 will be taken into account when working out how much you should contribute towards your care. So if you are older and if you, um, you know, have accrued a bit of wealth, uh, you will be expected to pay for your for your care. Mm, but if you eat away into the universality of the system, people don't feel like they have a stake in it. No, they don't. And, um, you know, we've always, I think, in this country wrestled with the problem that, you know, the NHS, uh, our National Health Service, where you receive uh, medical treatment free at, at, at point of use, the more successful the NHS is, the more expensive it gets. And, of course, you've got a ballooning ageing population, which will put increasing pressure yeah. on the system too. Just to come back to this juxtaposition theme, there does seem to yeah. be among political analysts a view that Labour's making an interesting case that should be explored, that maybe the pendulum swung too far. There are certain essential core services that should be run by governments that have been sold off and need to be bought back. And yet a lot of people are saying, well, maybe they've got a point, but we just don't see Jeremy Corbyn as a potential prime minister. So it's not necessarily the electorate rejecting Labour's ideas, and it's highly expected that those ideas will be rejected big time. It's more that they just don't perceive Labour in its present state under its current leadership as the people to implement it. Well, when when you ask people, I think it is the case that that a lot of people trust the Conservatives more with the economy, even though people are really angry about austerity and bringing down the deficit and all of that. You know, Jeremy Corbyn has announced, you know, almost £60 billion of of spending plans. And And I'm sure it's all all needed. But where does that money come from? You know, he said he's not going to put up um, a VAT or, or income tax. Um, so the money's going to come from from somewhere. And, and you know, he said he's going to put uh, put VAT on private school tuitions. But is that is that really going to raise enough? So inevitably, there would there would probably need to be some borrowing at some stage. And, you know, we know how where that leads. I was staggered in 2010 by how easily the left in Britain capitulated and they bought into this view that, well, the Conservatives are the largest party and that gives them the right to form a government, even though when you combine the Lib Dems and Labour and a few other interests, there was a clear majority in Parliament that had a left of centre bent. But nevertheless, Gordon Brown didn't handle that situation very well at all. And there were some in the Labour Party who just didn't want to go into bed with the Lib Dems. The Lib Dems went into coalition with the Conservatives, paid a huge price for that electorally in 2015. They were decimated. I guess they would have hoped for a little more recovery time before the next election. And they are trying to pitch this argument about, well, maybe we'll have another referendum on the EU question. How do you think the Lib Dems recovery is going to go in this election? 
I just don't think people are 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 convinced. Um, you know, interestingly, on a personal level, I've met um, Tim Farron, actually. He worked at um, Lancaster University when I was uh, a student there, um, and he was um, responsible for supporting the uh, disabled students, uh, and he didn't know where the embosser was. Uh, so, <laughs> so, so, and then I was staggered when I thought, I know that voice. When he when he became, you know, uh, um, leader of the Lib Dems, I, like, I know that voice. And I went and sort of Googled him. I was like, yes, you are the same guy. <laughs> uh, yeah, I just, I just don't think people are really... Uh, convinced by the Lib Dems, I think it's going to be a long time before they 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 really come back. And and Nick Clegg got himself into a real mess in the in the coalition. He was the previous leader of the uh, Liberal Democrats, and he promised that um, the Liberal Democrats, pretty much under no circumstances, would support tuition fees. So when you go to university uh, in England and Wales, you pay up to nine thousand pounds a year for your your tuition in in the in the past you you didn't and nick clegg in coalition uh with the liberal uh you know he with the liberal democrats and the conservatives you know he he went along with that and and it's always as my understanding you know when you you talk to people about coalitions in other countries the smaller partner often is is the one that kind of suffers often um so they were all but but finish but you know i think they have something distinctive to say they they were they were very uh, pro remain their their position is essentially that they're not saying have another referendum on leaving the european union what they're saying is that once we know what the deal looks like so once we get to the end of this two year period uh and we have a sense of what things will be like outside of, of of the European Union? Take that deal back to the people and, and and let people have a have a referendum on that. But I think it's highly unlikely. I don't think they're going to get enough momentum in in, in this election. Hmm. Based on my reading and listening, it seems to me like there's a stoicism in Britain that's setting in about Brexit. That even those people who were staunchly opposed to it are kind of in a position now, increasingly, where they're saying. Look, it's done now, and we have to try and get the best deal we can and just move on. Yeah, that's right. And uh, you know, for a year, you know, Theresa May is at every opportunity has, has said, "There's, there's no going back. We are leaving the European Union." The argument now is, well, what kind of deal um, should we be looking for? Because you know, Theresa May has made it quite clear that if we leave the European Union. Uh, if the deal isn't isn't good enough, we'll just we'll have no deal. You know that no deal is better than a bad deal is 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 her position, and and some people view that as as quite a sort of strong, you know, position to take. The question is about the the single market. So if you're a member of the European Union, um, you're signed up for what they call the four freedoms, which are goods, services, people, and and capital that they can flow freely across um, the borders of countries that are in that that membership. And uh, the European Union Constitution says that those four freedoms are indivisible. Um, and Theresa May said that we, we respect that. And so we will leave the single market because this is all about immigration. You know, at the end of the day, that's that's what's what's driven this. You know, there are nearly 300,000 people a year come into the UK. You know, and we're not a, we're not a big island. And so those on the leave side say that this is stretching resources. In actual fact, only half of those immigrants come from within the EU. About half of them come from outside the EU. And the Conservatives, yet again in their manifesto, have made the pledge to bring immigration levels down to the, they say, the tens of thousands. 
not clear how they're going to achieve that. Mm. Uh, and it just seems like pie and sky, the idea that we're going to get immigration back down to levels of 20 years ago. You know, and of course, if you're a cynic, you'd say, well, what we'll do is we'll make it so it's such a miserable place to live that nobody will want to come anyway. Meanwhile, things are bubbling away in Scotland, and there's a suggestion that there'll be another referendum if the Scottish National Party have a big result like they did two years ago, because, of course, the vast majority of uh, Scotsmen, I don't know if that's the right term these days in this uh, gender-neutral world, but the vast majority of people in Scotland voted to remain and they feel like they've been dragged out of the EU against their will. So that could be another big challenge for Theresa May in the next term. Well, if she gets her expected uh, majority, and she's basically saying that um, there wouldn't be uh, another Scottish referendum until after we have left the EU. Um, The Conservatives are all about keeping the United Kingdom together I think the full name of the party is something like the Conservative and Unionist Union Party or something. I can't remember exactly, but you know that's that's very central to the Conservative ideology is to to keep the UK. So they will fight tooth and nail uh, to to stop that from happening. Yeah. But what's to um, stop the what's to stop the Scottish Parliament from doing it on their own? Well, they can't at the moment. They don't have the 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 uh, the power. To, they right, have it's to not get, been devolved to them. Um, okay. Hmm. No, it's not involved them. So they have to get Westminster's approval. So there has to be a vote in the House of Commons, as there was for this election. So people might be wondering, well, what happened to the Fixed Term Parliament Act? You know, <laughs> they, they basically, when Theresa May had her announcement, they were going to have an election. She had to go back to Parliament uh, and there was a vote in Parliament, which, which you know, was won comfortably because... You know, she had the majority anyway. Um, yeah, but Labour won't. No, but you what, see, what kind of opposition? But a two-thirds majority was required to trigger this, and so really, Labour yeah, has behaved like Turkey's going to an early Christmas. I mean, don't you think that it might have been appropriate for Labour to just have a little bit of a think and just talk about the potential ramifications of saying, "No, we're not going to give you this election now. Do your job, Theresa." Well, yeah, but then. What kind of opposition is going to shy away from from an, from an election? It's, you know, this is a, an opportunity for them to put their policies in front of the public to get equal airtime and all the rest of it, um, because we're in a in an election campaign. So they, I think, that the view is that they would have appeared to have been cowards had they not, um, yeah, agreed to it. So, so in that sense, it was quite clever politics <coughs> on Theresa May's part to to basically call their uh, bluff in that way. Oh, she's very clever, you know. It feels like she's got it sewn up, Jonathan. Uh, you know, she knows exactly what she's doing. Uh, the timing is uh, is impeccable, and 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 her, her opponents are saying, "Well, uh, actually, we can't trust this woman because she's been telling us for a year that we're not going to have an election, and now we are having an election." You know, she's been telling us for years when she was Home Secretary that she was going to bring down immigration. That hasn't happened, so that would be the opposition's sort of position. But there is a very very strong sense. But you know what? Strange things happen in politics, and uh, last year was um, seismic, you know, around the world for yeah, all sorts yeah, of reasons. Yeah, you just never so, know, you? Especially with the bizarre <coughs> nature of First Past the Post. The disability movement needs to coalesce, according to some people, and vote as a block and really advance their rights. And I see that the Twitter hashtag that was used in last year's US election has made its way to Britain, and this hashtag is Crip the Vote, which I personally wonder how many blind people identify with a hashtag like that. It doesn't seem particularly inclusive to me, but is that gaining any traction? 
I'm not aware of it gaining much traction. I don't feel comfortable with that hashtag personally. No. Uh, I find it difficult to identify with. I agree that we are, or we should be, as a, as a disability community, a, a, a voice, and particularly as we are all subjected to these um, these assessments. I mean, I, I mean, I, I I'm in this this process at the moment. So this personal independence payment, uh, which is the cost of living with an extra, you know, with a disability, um, and everyone's been migrated over from from the, the disability living allowance. I'm in this process at the moment, and I've had the the form come through the post, and there's an arrangement between the DWP well, and an and accessible the form. No, so this was the thing. So, so the arrangement is that you can phone up the RNIB and they will help you complete the form over the phone okay. and then they will print it out. They will send you their copy and then you treasury tag it to the original form and then you send it in. And <laughs> what's happening? I've, I, I know, it's, it's ridiculous. And, and I, I've heard two instances very recently of, of people where the completed form as, as filled in with help from RNIB has been separated from the original form. So people have been invited to their assessment, their their interview, um, and the first question from the assessor is, where's your completed form? We don't have it. You know, and then of course, these things are difficult to fill in at the at the best of times. It's emotionally very stressful because obviously as a disabled person, you spend your whole life thinking about what you can do and how you're going to do things and problem solving and being positive to try and succeed. And you've got to then fill in this form where you're essentially listing all the things you can't do and, you know, speaking about your your weaknesses. And it's very personal, you know, about how you you shower and how you cook and how you you do things. You've got to put all this on a on a form and tell a tell a stranger. So I think it's quite a harrowing experience. And then to have to go through that again, because some idiot has lost your form or it's, it's become separated or that nobody's been able to come up with a better system. Why on earth can't uh, you just complete it online in 2017? Well, it, exactly. And I I phoned up last week because they gave me an appointment um, for this week that they wanted to come around to do the assessment here. And I'd specifically said I didn't want to come, people coming to my house. I wanted to to go to, to them. But I only found out a couple of days before and I already had some work booked in. So I so I phoned up and I, I said, look, I've only just found out about this appointment. I'm not going to be able to make it. Can we reschedule? And the first response was, well, if you cancel it, Mr. Williams, you will lose the, the benefit. The application will go back to DWP, basically. And I, I, I said, well, I'm going to have to because I've already agreed to do some work with somebody. I need to reschedule this. I said, and the reason is because you haven't written to me in an accessible format. So I don't know about you, Jonathan, but my print posts, like, you know, I scan what I can, but mm. then the things that need filling in, then I need help with that. So I would get somebody else to, to come and maybe do that once a week. So the snail mail can, can be even slower than, than the postman because sometimes things are sitting there for a day or two uh, while I can get somebody to, to, to help me with it. So, I, But I know they can do Braille because my wife, who is also blind, around at Dave Emmers, she receives Braille. Um, and I don't understand why she receives Braille and I don't. So, so I asked, can I have Braille? So they put me on hold for ages while she went to check with her manager whether I can receive Braille. Uh, and the lady came back on the phone and she said, yep, Mr. Williams, that's that, uh, good news. Yes, we can send you Braille. So she starts tapping away on her computer. And then she said, can you just, just remind, how, how are we spelling Braille, Mr. Williams? 
<laughs> Could you just spell that for me? Now, I couldn't work out, Jonathan, whether she genuinely didn't know or whether it was some kind of subtle test to see whether I was playing games with them. And that's the thing that people are, are, are paranoid about this. Every communication with them, you, you, you feel on trial. It sounds positively disorderly and draconian at the same time. It really is. What about the process of casting of those? It's obviously important to keep exercising that franchise. So how does one do it accessibly in the UK? Well, there are two ways you can vote, uh, and these are quite um, draconian as well. Uh, so you can have a postal vote where they will send you the ballot paper, uh, print, of course, to your home, and then... Uh, you can have somebody you trust described by ballot paper to you and to show, you, you know, put your fingers where the, the boxes are, where you put your tick, and then you can post it, post it back. So that's one option. The other option is to go to the polling station. And at the polling station, they have a tactile template that fits over your ballot paper. And if you imagine the little doors that you get you know on an advent calendar where mm. you fold back a little square the positions of those sort of folding squares correspond to the boxes on the ballot paper and they are numbered and the numbers are are tactile so somebody would read the ballot paper to you they would fit the template over it and then you go into the polling booth and with your pencil you make the x in the box that you want but you don't really have a way to verify that you know once you you've you've put your cross on the paper you don't know if the pencil has has worked or or not and it is a you know a 17th 18th century uh, voting system you know and then you put your bit of paper in a box and then somebody counts it so there has to be a better option and in 2015 when i went to vote in the general election the polling station didn't have the correct template the template for like a european election or something had been issued instead and I wasn't able to cast a secret ballot. And I had to get the assistance of the staff at the polling station with my vote. And I was horrified by this, Jonathan. I really was. I was so angry because I just said, this is 2015, as it was at the time. Um, and, and blind people can't vote independently. What, you know, what's going on? You know, we're in one of the, you know, what's claimed to be one of the oldest democracies in the world. And then anyway, so I wrote to everybody, you know. Um, I remember. Commission. Mm. And, yeah and um, and in touch picked it up and 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 it was on the it was on the BBC and I received um, an apology from the uh, the county council here and then the RNIB rang up and said do you want do you want to take it to court and I said no I don't want to take it to court I just want to fix it you know I just want to work with them to test a better system you know and I sent information in uh, links to is it iVote they use in Australia. There are digital systems that are accessible. There are telephone ways to vote over the telephone in some parts of the world. That there are solutions out there to this problem. But the Electoral Commission just don't seem to. They say, oh, we're looking at all of this, you know, but they just don't seem to want to. I think we, we maybe we do need some legal action or, or, you know, an act of parliament or something to make, make this more accessible. All right. So as we conclude, We'll put you on the spot and get you to make a prediction. What's the majority going to be for the Conservatives? I presume you subscribe to the conventional view that it will be a Conservative landslide. I've heard nothing that leads me to think that, that anything else is, is likely. But then, you know, I went to bed the end of June last year thinking that, um, you know, we would remain in the EU 
And I woke up to find out that uh, we'd voted out. So, you know, I wouldn't set much store by my predictions. But yes, I think the Conservatives will increase their majority substantially. Into three figures, you think? Yes. Thanks for listening to The Blind Side, a production of Mosin Consulting. On the web at mosin.org.